Good morning. My name is Dorothy Wells. I'm the rector at St. George's Episcopal Church in Germantown, and welcome to Faithfully Memphis. Each Thursday morning, we share in great conversation about the intersection of faith in our lives, and we are so glad to have you all with us today. Our guest today uh, is Bishop Doug Scharf, who is the Bishop of the Diocese of Southwest Florida, fairly new to his seat, uh, but we'll be talking to him in just a little bit about all of the things that are going on in Southwest Florida. Obviously, uh, having been hit by Hurricane Ian, they're facing a lot right now, and we'll hear a lot from Doug about the work that is going on in his diocese. Um, the theme of this series is really um, the, the, a lot about the future of the church, uh, that which is being cast down and being raised up. Uh, so we are, are looking forward to hearing about the future of a particular diocese that is in the process of very literal rebuilding. Um, as we gather together today, um, there has been a lot going on in the Memphis area and a lot of things that affect us as Christians in the Memphis area. Um, many of us have seen video from the, the brutal beating of a Memphis citizen, Tyree Nichols, um, who, whose life was lost um, just weeks ago. And we... Um, we grieve on behalf of an entire community for the for the loss of his life and for the loss of his future. And we also grieve the things that we know as a community need to be under our microscope, um, things that we need to consider in new ways. Um, how How does policing look and how do these kinds of things not happen again? How do they not become part of, of just an ongoing pattern? So we are grateful for the opportunity to lift the Nichols family up in prayer, uh, even as we grieve the loss of his life. And we are grateful as churches to be able to try to stand in that gap, um, to be voices for those who are oppressed and those who are not heard so that um, we, we can help make a difference in the community in which we live. I'm actually recording this show on January 31st and our saint of the day today is a pre an Italian priest um, by the name of John Bosco, Giovanni Bosco, um, born near Turin, Italy, um, and one who committed himself to education. I have a wonderful quote from him um, that, that says a lot, and we'll, I'll expand a little bit on my thinking about this quote in just a moment, but here is the quote. Every education teaches a philosophy by suggestion, implication, atmosphere. Every part has a connection with every other part. If it does not combine to convey some general view of life, it is not education at all. That quote really struck me uh, as we are about to embark on another Black History Month. I will offer to folks that I am, as a Black person, not the biggest fan of Black History Month because I feel like 28 days is really not sufficient time for us as a nation to talk about 
the history of all of us for the last 400 years. Um, because it's not just about achievements and accomplishments of some notable people, but it is a history of how it is that we have all lived together in 28 days strikes me as a very short time for us to engage in that kind of conversation. So when I encounter um, Giovanni Bosco's quote about education and every part of education having a connection with every other part, it strikes me that in places where now we even question whether there should be education about um, about black persons living in this country and how we have all lived together, that strikes me as the absence of education rather than the um, the the furtherance of education to help us all grow in relationship with one another. So I do hope that during the course of this month, we will not just look at achievements and accomplishments, but we'll look at a full history of who we all are living together and how it is that we can grow together. And so we are thankful this day for um, a saint who taught us a lot about education through his own commitment to educating others. We are so happy to have with us today Bishop Doug Scharf from the Episcopal Diocese of Southwest Florida. Um, Doug, are you, are you the newest bishop in um, the Episcopal Church right now? Are you, are you the most recently ordained bishop in the Episcopal Church right now? I'm actually not the newest. I was uh, consecrated on September 24th, and there's been at least two or three consecrations uh, since then. 2022 was a busy year uh, for Episcopal elections. And so our new class recently met for our first uh, college for bishops gathering. And it's a great new class of, of, of exciting new bishops. Well, I'm certainly excited for you and for your ministry, having gotten to know you uh, back in our Candler days together. I'm certainly very excited to um, to know that you will be out there continuing the work that you are so well equipped to do. Um, so rumor has it you may be the youngest bishop in the Episcopal Church. Do you know if that's true? You know, I have not been able to confirm that, but just looking at the House of Bishops and um, the bishops that I know, I think I'm the youngest for now. I'm not the youngest ever ordained for sure, but um, uh, right now in the house, I think I'm the, the youngest. Tell us a little bit about your background. You're a cradle Episcopalian. I am. I, I grew up in the Episcopal Church. My earliest memories are actually here in Southwest Florida. In fact, this coming Sunday, I will be visiting uh, the church where I grew up and received my first communion and and went to Sunday school for the first time. So it'll be very uh, surreal to be back there now as their as their bishop. Um, but you know, I I have such a wonderful uh, family history in the Episcopal and Anglican uh, Church. Uh, my great grandparents were both strong Anglicans in the Church of England before they moved here to the United States. And right before I was elected, we actually found out that my great-great-grandfather uh, was very active in the Anglican Church in Ireland um, in the mid-19th century. And my father gave me as a gift uh, my great-great-grandfather's uh, Book of Common Prayer uh, that was his. So 
the Episcopal Church and Anglicanism runs really deep in my in my family and in my blood. That is so wonderful to hear. And and I, I'm guessing you must be a first vocation clergy person. I am. Yeah, my dad is a priest. And so uh, he was a second vocation priest. He was a high school math teacher for 25 years and discerned a call to the priesthood when I was about five years old. And so I remember going off to seminary um, with, with my family. And uh, from that point on, became very involved in the church. Uh, never went through sort of that rebellious uh, preacher's kid phase. Uh, so stayed active through middle school and high school. And really, um, I attended Happening. A lot of people will know Happening as a renewal weekend for, um, for high school students. My wife and I attended together. We were dating at the time. And that was really the experience for me that was kind of that, um, this is what I have to do kind of moment. And I was 17 years old and went and spoke with my bishop at the time. He was 100% supportive, kind of took me under his wings as a, as a mentee and um, went to seminary when I was uh, 21, graduated when I was 24 and ordained a deacon when I was 24. Wow. Well, I, I'm glad to hear your testimony about uh, happening because I know it was certainly a formative time for my children. I didn't grow up in the Episcopal Church, but my children did. And those happening weekends were certainly formative times in their lives. And it's so good to hear this story for you um, because that's, that's a powerful testimony for what happening does. So thank you for sharing that with us. Well, and it's a reason why I'm excited about the future of youth and young adult ministry and campus ministry in the Episcopal Church, because I'm a product of the investment that the church made in that, in those ministries. And so I just want to see us make that a priority, because I think young people are hungry for a sense of purpose and a sense of vision and mission, and uh, we have something to offer them. Yes. Yes, and that is definitely part of the future of our church, and um, and we need to be investing in that. I, I love your choice of words there, because we do need to invest in our young people and, and what we have to offer young people. That, that's very, very important. Um, so you're in a place where we really can talk a lot about the future of the church, um, because all of us obviously have, have been watching from afar with the things that have been happening with Hurricane Ian uh, and recovery efforts. And I, I'd, I'd love to know, first of all, how's, how's your diocese doing? I mean, I know individuals have obviously lost homes. I know some of your churches have been harmed. But how, how is your diocese doing through all of this? Well, thankfully, we're doing, uh, I think, quite well, um, all things considered. My consecration as a bishop was on September 24th. Four days later, on September 28th, uh, Hurricane Ian hit uh, the third uh, costliest storm in, in history and the deadliest storm in Florida in about 90 years. So certainly a major, major event, uh, disaster in the life of our diocese. Um, we can talk more about the specifics uh, as we go along, but at this moment, uh, we're still in the phase where we are working through insurance claims and FEMA applications and all of that sort of um, on the ground um, administration kind of work as we are also trying to uh, process, right, emotionally and um, in terms of 
how this is going to impact uh, this this part of our diocese for for decades to come. Right, right. I'm curious how many of your churches were damaged to a point that they you, that you can no longer worship in them currently. So right now we actually uh, have, I believe, only two buildings that are not usable right now. Um, the church on Fort Myers Beach and the church on Sanibel Island. So yes. two of our island churches, uh, for obvious reasons, were the hardest hit. Right. Um, we did have other churches. Um, we may have a third that is using, uh, not in their worship space, their nave, but a, but a, but a uh, supporting building. Um, but initially, we had many churches that were not usable for weeks or uh, several months after the storm. Thankfully, a lot of the remediation work has been able to, to happen at a fairly accelerated pace. Church insurance has been great in terms of their support. And um, a lot of our churches are beginning to, um, to, to reinitiate their, their more regular worship life and, and program life. You are pastoring into the grief and sadness of lots of things, losses of homes, losses of, of lifestyle as people have been living, losses of worship spaces and communal spaces. What has that been like for you personally? Well, one of the things I did immediately following the storm was um, once it was safe to get into some of these areas, um, was to set aside about three to four days just to be down in that region and driving around, checking in with rectors, touring the churches that were damaged. And what that did immediately was um, foster uh, a sense of, of trust and, and um, laying a foundation for those relationships, uh, those pastoral relationships. Some of these clergy I, I knew from years ago, having been in the diocese, but a lot of them I, I didn't know. So um, out of that, that sort of disaster and that initial trauma, there was an opportunity to immediately begin to engage in these pastoral relationships. Um, and next week, I'm gonna do the same thing. It's been about four months um, since the storm. And um, I will be going back for the second part of next week for about three days and doing the same thing, just being present, no agenda, um, just just to be with the people and to um, offer whatever support and 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 healing that I can. All of the all of the damage, all of the all of the changes that people are are experiencing right now in Southwest Florida. Certainly, as we look at what the future of the church can be, um, you all are going to be pioneering some things for others to see in terms of flexibility. You mentioned earlier, people might have been outside of their own worship spaces for a time. Um, people are having to welcome folks in very different ways and care for folks in very different ways. What are you seeing um, in terms of support and love and, and the ministry that is coming from your diocese right now to those who have been so um, so affected by everything that has happened? Well, there's a lot of parts to that question. So let me try to take, uh, to, let me try to parse that out just a bit. Um, I mean, initially what we saw, not surprisingly, was 
was was an amazing response, both from from local churches in the area that were not as affected, providing space and resources for other other churches. Uh, that was both between Episcopal churches, but also uh, but also ecumenically. Um, we have one church that pretty much has their permanent worship space for the next 18 to 24 months uh, with a local, I think it's Lutheran, uh, a local Lutheran church. And that Lutheran church has welcomed them, welcomed them in and um, they have a great uh, partnership. And so I think perhaps what we're beginning to see is out of this, um, we always knew there was a need for collaboration, both within um, our, our deaneries and within the diocese, but also ecumenically. And this forced some of that to happen. So my hope is that when we begin to move out of this phase and people are back in their buildings and things return to whatever semblance of normalcy will, will, will come, come out of this, that we don't lose that, that we don't lose that sense of interconnectedness and partnership um, because we can become so easily siloed uh, in the church, right? And uh, just kind of focusing on our own thing and this forced us to break some of that open. So that's number one. Um, number two, uh, churches that were beginning to think strategically about how they could better use their buildings and their land uh, now have to, right? Um, because uh, in a lot of places, it doesn't make sense to rebuild uh, what was built there 50 or 60 years ago, right? Or, or, or at least in the same way. Um, some of that is out of necessity because uh, if another storm comes, we need to, to take the measures uh, that are needed to, to guard against future damage. Um, but it's more about mission and identity and what does it look like for this? What does it look like for the Episcopal Church to do ministry and be serving uh, the needs of that community in 2023? Um, and those are exciting conversations. Right. So it, it, they're, they're both uh, conversations that have to be sensitive to the grief that people are still feeling. Any amount of change brings grief, even positive change that might come out of this. Um, so how do we navigate through that grief work while also begin dreaming and thinking about what God is doing next? Yes. And what the Diocese of Southwest Florida is going to look like a decade from now or two decades from now. And and for you to be in the midst of that has got to be exciting for you um, to, to this time of discernment about what God is calling you all to do and be in Southwest Florida. That's got to be an exciting time for you, too. Well, it certainly has has uh, given me focus. Right. Um, on September 24th, there were a lot of different areas that were vying for my attention. On September 28th, it became very clear uh, where the focus was, right? And I think part of the challenge has been um, to not lose that focus um, with all with everything else that's going on in the diocese and, and the wider church. Uh, so that's part of the reason why I'm going down there next week is to really re-engage and, and, and tap back into that initial energy and make sure we don't lose that. So you've talked about ways that churches are opening their arms to support one another and to support the community. And obviously there are some some different things that are going on. Um, there were some early reports that suggested that there were a good number of undocumented workers that came seeking construction work um, shortly after the hurricane. Um, talk about that kind of change and how you see churches in your diocese responding to that. 
Well, I'm really grateful for the question because uh, it's an area that um, uh, admittedly I had not given uh, as much thought to as I probably needed to. So I was grateful for, for this topic coming up. I actually reached out to some local leaders over the past few days just to get a, a sense of what was happening on the ground. Um, South Florida in general is an area where we have large uh, migrant populations um, that are seasonal, depending on uh, what crops are ready to be harvested, what work is available. And so that's not a new reality for us. That's something that has been part of our uh, experience um, for, for many decades. What the storm did was to uh, really shine a light on some of those uh, unique challenges that, that, uh, that we are facing um, both in the wake of the storm and in longer term. So for example, uh, the storm flooded uh, many of the fields where these workers would have been working. And so they uh, were displaced and uh, had to go find other work and in some cases were, were um, hired to work and then not paid. So there were, there were scams and uh, uh, ways in which they were um, taken advantage of and, and disenfranchised. And, and so that further it, it exacerbates right, their, their, their challenges financially and, and otherwise. Um, housing, which is a, a huge issue in South Florida, affordable housing, um, and it's only getting worse with, with uh, home prices and interest rates. Um, not surprisingly, uh, a lot of our uh, migrant housing was, was damaged. Um, and in terms of where resources are directed, right, that's not where, where a lot of resources are being directed. They're being directed to the more affluent areas. Um, and so how do we, um, as a church, respond to, to some of those um, uh, specific needs? Um, I think the thing that I'm proudest of, and this is this this came out of my conversations with with folks over the last week, is in in the wake of the storm, um, it really was all about Matthew 25, right? How how do we as the church uh, clothe the naked, provide shelter to those who are vulnerable, feed those who are hungry? Um, how do we be um, Jesus? Um, in, in the midst of that? And how do we see the Jesus in them, right? As, 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 as Jesus said, when you do it to the least of these, you're doing this unto me. Um, and so there's a lot of work to do in that area. The storm has, has highlighted a number of key issues, but I think for our churches, they are simply seeking to be uh, an outpost of the kingdom of God and, and to, to, to be a, a source of, of, um, of healing and justice in those communities. Well, it's good to hear that. Um, there's so many questions about immigration policy and obviously questions about how the church should be responding um, in all kinds of ways. And you, you've touched on the very tangible, we need to be feeding the hungry and clothing the naked and and doing those immediate things, but what role do you think the church should have uh, in trying to help shape immigration policy? Um, should we be more vocal? Should should there be something more than the ways that we tangibly try to help folks once they are here? Well, I think that scripture is pretty clear, uh, both, both testaments, right, about uh, welcoming the stranger and and the the immigrant among us, 
And so I think we do have a moral obligation to be part of the conversation um, and the church, in, especially um, in, in, the, in the early centuries of the church, uh, there, there was a, a witness in terms of the church's engagement with, with, uh, with civil authorities. And for whatever reason, we, in certain parts of the church, we've uncoupled that responsibility from, you know, mission, worship, education, whatever those other things are that we're doing. Um, so I would hope that as we look towards the future, um, that whatever the issue is, but immigration uh, is certainly a big one in South Florida, um, that the church is, is, is a voice at the table because um, how we, there's a culture of fear um, among uh, our, our migrant population um, that um, doesn't need to be, right? Well, speak to that, the culture of fear of uh, being deported, of being deported, um, of of uh, of being denied uh, some basic rights, right? Um, that I think all human beings are are entitled to, you know. Um, so we've got to find some sensible, clear, consistent, and compassionate ways uh, to to structure that. Um, uh, and, and I think the church has a has a has a role in that work. Indeed, if you look at um, all of our scriptures, the, the stories of migrants in our scriptures are prominent and real. And, um, and I, I think God has roles for those who have been migrants in our scriptures. And we shouldn't, probably shouldn't be turning a blind eye to that. So I'm, I'm glad to hear that, that you feel the church should have a more proactive voice. Well, and if I can add one more thing to that, and this is more a, a broader principle for me, but um, I am fully convinced that if the church can't model um, civil, productive, healthy, loving dialogue around these uh, intense topics in our culture today, how can we expect anyone else to do it, right? I mean, this is, this is our calling. This is who we are as followers of Jesus. Um, so let's let's do the work. It's hard work. It's complicated work, but it's kingdom work. And um, if we can't model that in a way that fosters healing, reconciliation, and trust, um, how in the world can we expect anyone else to do it? So as a rector, when we've engaged hard topics, whether it's immigration or racial healing and reconciliation um, or a host of other topics, that's been my uh my my mantra with my uh, congregations is let's have the conversation and let's be part of the solution um, because that's who we are as followers of Jesus and we need to model that for the world. Thank you and amen. <laughs> Thank you for that. Um, and speaking of um, challenging and difficult topics, um, I'm a Gulf Coast girl myself. Um, we hear so much conversation about climate change and weather. Um, and I'm curious from your standpoint, um, the hurricane activity, which I mean, there's been a lot of hurricane activity and some of it has been very severe. Um, to what extent do you believe that climate change could be um, a part of that conversation? And what is the responsibility of the church also to be able to speak to that? Well, 
As with so many of the, the topics that we're discussing, I'm very cognizant of the, of the fact that there are a variety of views right here in, in my own diocese. Um, but I think it's abundantly clear looking at the data over the last five to 10 years that both the frequency and intensity of these storms is increasing. And we have to acknowledge that uh, reality. Um, I was talking, we're, we're actually, um, before this interview, I've been working with a representative for the Episcopal Relief and Development, uh, looking at uh, some grant opportunities for hurricane relief here in Southwest Florida. And we were talking about those data points, right? Looking at the last uh, decade or so and the number of areas, particularly along the, uh, the Gulf Coast and in the Caribbean that have been hit by major storms. Um, and I mentioned Ian's statistics, third costliest, uh, deadliest in, in almost 90 years uh, here in Florida. And we're also seeing uh, areas in our diocese that haven't flooded um, in 100 years uh, and, are, and are, are flooding not just from hurricanes, but um, from, from afternoon thunderstorms, right? Um, and that's particularly true in Southeast Florida, the diocese uh, I was serving in before being elected bishop. Um, so these are realities. Um, another huge topic related to that is insurance and the cost of insurance um, for our churches and, and property. And it's all connected to um, the fact that we've had so many large claims uh, over the past uh, uh, several, several years. Um, so there's a couple things. One, um, certainly as we're looking towards rebuilding, we are uh, looking at locations, looking at what we're building, how we're building, and making sure that we're doing it in a way that is both prudent, uh, given these changes, um, but also perhaps more eco ecologically sensitive than the way we were doing things um, before. And then for me, and I'll just speak to this personally, um, and, and Dorothy, you'll appreciate this. Um, I, I believe that God has given us such incredible responsibility as stewards of creation, and it's connected to the promise of new creation that we find in so many of the New Testament writings, including uh, the book of Revelation. And, and so if, if God really cares about this creation to the point that, that our eschatological hope, to use a, a, a fancy theological term, is new creation, then what we do with this creation matters, right? And, and how we care for this creation is in so many ways um, a foretaste um, and, and part of our stewardship as we look towards, towards God's future. Um, so whether it's how we rebuild after hurricanes or how we use land in South Florida or so many other issues, um, as with the other topics we've, we've talked about, uh, this is part of our responsibility as followers of Jesus to take these uh, issues seriously and to be at the table um, as we have these conversations. So you've just, you've offered a big, big glimpse into the future of the church uh, from the perspective of the Diocese of Southwest Florida. Um, and I, and I, I want to just expand a little bit on that. You were talking about um, notions around what needs to be rebuilt and the prudence that is engaged in the discussion around rebuilding and how ecologically 
sensitive you must be to some of those notions. Um, and I, I loved your careful choice of, of language there. Um, do you see um, your diocese perhaps being a model to some of the, some of the rest of us about how to look into and envision a future of being servants of Christ that perhaps allows our spaces to do things very differently than we have done them in the past? Well, I hope so. <laughs> uh, you know, I've, I've been the bishop now, I guess, about six weeks. So there's still a lot that I'm learning and uh, a lot of prayerful discernment lies ahead in terms of uh, the life and mission and vision that God has for the Diocese of Southwest Florida. But some things that I can lift up, I think, um, immediately are the fact that we are blessed in Southwest Florida with um, beautiful uh, lands and, 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 and opportunities uh, here. We are still growing uh, in terms of population. In fact, we're growing pretty rapidly in certain parts of our diocese, which is not the case in other parts uh, of the church. Um, we still have a fairly stable base financially in terms of uh, folks who have the capacity to give and support the church. Got a uh, lot of retirees. A lot of retirees. Um, that's not experienced equally across all of our congregations, right? We have some, certainly many who are struggling and, and but I think we've got a foundation that, that we can build upon. Um, we have a wonderful camp and conference center, 110 acres here on the Manatee River, where my office is situated. So we have resources, right? So we, we've got opportunities um, that other dioceses don't have. And so I'm grateful for that. And I feel like we, are, we have a responsibility um, to not just coast and, and um, rely on the, the goodness of those who have gone before us and, and, and our benefactors, but to leverage that to be um, missionally minded in creative and, and sometimes experimental ways. Um, and now that's the part I don't quite know what all that looks like, but I know that's a direction we need to head is to be willing to say a traditional parochial model may no longer work in this community, but there are significant missional opportunities, needs in this community that the Episcopal Church um, can address. Mm -hmm. And so what I'm thinking about is a decade from now, 15 years from now, um, I want us to be thinking less about how many congregations we have and more about what is the ministry and mission of the Episcopal Church in a particular place? What are, what are we doing? And in some cases, that will look very much the way it looks right now, a congregation doing ministry the way you and I, Dorothy, uh, have been trained to do ministry. I think in other cases, um, it may be a, a local um, farm-to-table kind of ministry that has a worshiping community. Um, it might be low-income housing that has a chapel. I'm in conversation with one church that has a beautiful piece of property about making that a retreat center with, with a chapel because there's a need in that part of the diocese for meeting space. And so I just think that we've got to think about what does it look like for the church to have a presence, to have a mission. Um, our schools are another 
wonderful opportunity. I came from a church that had a school. We've got 12 schools in this diocese that are, for the most part, growing and have have um, wonderful missional opportunities. So that's my vision, is that we begin to think beyond the parochial model, and we begin to think in terms of mission and ministry on the ground. And that may look very different depending on uh, the where and the when and the who. So I'm intrigued. I, I have to tell you, I'm intrigued. You just said that you have 12 schools in your diocese. Are those are those preschools, K through six, K through eight, K through 12? Tell me about your schools because we don't have that many schools in our diocese. And so I am intrigued by that. Well, it, it's a mix and um, I'm still learning about uh, all the different schools. They're primarily concentrated in the northern part of our diocese uh, in St. Petersburg and Tampa and Bradenton. Um, but we have a large college preparatory school in Bradenton, K-12, um, another large school in, um, in, the, in the Tampa area that's K-12. We've got... Um, two parochial schools in Tampa that I think are K-8 that are doing very well. They're all structured a little bit differently. Some are connected to parishes, some are not. But what's exciting is we're in the midst of a um, pretty widespread transition, both in terms of rectors and heads of school. And it's just sort of the natural uh, turnover of leadership. And in almost all cases, that has resulted in a stronger, healthier relationship between the church and the school and the leadership. And they're doing more together um, in terms of outreach, worship, um, evangelism. And uh, so I think that's a whole nother area that uh, those, those dioceses that have schools can, uh, can tap into as, as missional partners. Absolutely. Absolutely. Wow. 12 schools. Wow. Um, We've touched on a lot, and it's it's clear that that your diocese has a lot of opportunity um, for for discerning God's will and God's work in all kinds of ways. Um, how would you want to sum all of this up? And, and and has there been something that I didn't ask you that you wished that I had asked that you would want to address about the future of your diocese and the future of the Episcopal Church? Well, I think I would say a couple things. One, uh, I am hopeful about the future of the church um, for a number of reasons. One, uh, at least in this diocese, we're still seeing young people that want to be priests and deacons, which is exciting. Um, and they're dynamic young leaders that I think are going to bring even more energy and uh, fresh ideas uh, for the church. So that's exciting for me. Um, I'm getting to know my colleagues in the House of Bishops, and there's been a significant uh, turnover in the House of Bishops over the last um, five years or so. And I was able to attend general convention as the bishop-elect and sit in the House of Bishops. And I was incredibly um, encouraged by the, the collaboration and true collegiality that I experienced and deep prayer uh, for the church and for the future of the church. And so I think um, the election processes across the church uh, have gone pretty well and are, are raising up leaders that are 
uh, that are that are the right people, I think, for, for the future of the church. The last thing I'll say personally, and this is just my, my vision, um, we've been through a lot as a church. We're going through a lot as a culture. Um, there's a lot that can divide us. Uh, my hope and prayer is that we will focus passionately on what unites us. Um, so our theme for our diocesan convention was that they all may be one. And um, that, that took on, we, we chose that theme before the hurricane, but it took on a whole new meaning after the I'm hurricane sure it did. Uh, that, that we are one. And I've always thought of myself as a leader in terms of being a bridge and, and helping people cross over um, from what has been to what will be from old to new, from, um, from one way of being church to a new way of being church. And that doesn't mean that we let go of everything that has gone before. We are a church built on uh, scripture, tradition, and reason. But we also take that into a new frontier, a new reality uh, where God already is and where the kingdom of God is, is already established. And we go there to partner with, with God's spirit to be ambassadors of healing and reconciliation uh, to bring people together around a common mission and a common purpose. And uh, the last thing I'll say is at my seating sermon, or my, my seating, I preached on the question why. Uh, we, we can focus so much on the who, the what, and the how of ministry, but if we don't know why we're doing what we're doing, um, we, that's, that's when we burn out, and that's when we lose focus. And so I'm challenging the church and our congregations to just keep the why in front of us. Absolutely. There's, there's always need for us to be better at discerning God's work for us and not just responding. So yes, thank you for raising up that question. Why? Thank you. This has been a wonderful conversation, Doug. I'm, I'm so glad, glad to reconnect with you, um, but glad for you and for your ministry, excited for you. And now I've got to make a trip down to Southwest Florida so I can come see you. So Yes, please do. Please do. <laughs> come to Dayspring. It's a beautiful place here. Well, I, I'm going to have to do that. So thank you. <laughs> We have to put that on my calendar. We are so grateful, uh, Bishop Doug Scharf, for, um, Bishop of the Diocese of Southwest Florida, for you being with us on Faithfully Memphis. Blessings to you and your ministry. Blessings to your churches and your people, your schools. Blessings to all those who have been uprooted, um, that they will continue to find peace and comfort. And thank you so much for being with us on Faithfully Memphis. Well, thank you for having me and thank you for your ministry. We thank you for being with us today on Faithfully Memphis, and we are particularly appreciative to Bishop Doug Scharf for joining us and sharing us, sharing with us his visions um, for the future of the Diocese of Southwest Florida, and certainly visions for all of us as we try to discern God's will for us and the work that God has for us to do. 
Um, it's a reminder to all of us as we conclude this time together, um, you can find lots of information about the Episcopal Diocese of West Tennessee on Facebook, on Instagram, and of course at our website, um, edwtn.org, episcopaldioceseofwesttennessee.org. Um, so we hope that you will look at all of those places and find out what all of our churches are doing and listen to past episodes of Faithfully Manifest on Spotify uh, as you're listening to other podcasts. And, and please subscribe if you get the chance. Um, just one note about some things that are going on in the diocese, a plug for uh, St. George's Church. We will be hosting hosting um, journalist and author Daniel Connolly on February 12th uh, at our Faith in Formation immediately following our 10.30 a.m. service. Um, Daniel uh, penned a wonderful book about 10 years ago now, I guess, the book of Ezeus. Um, and um, we hope that you will be joining us um, to hear him talk about not only that book, but also about um, topics related to immigration. This book is actually set here in the Memphis area. We meet a young man who, um, whose family has migrated to Memphis and we'll get to talk about um, education issues and um, cultural and social challenges that are faced by migrant families and just all of the things that, that come upon them as they are trying to grow in relationship in this new country so and how they navigate those challenges so we do hope that you will plan to join us for that wonderful time with Daniel Conley. and thank you again for being with us this is Dorothy Wells for Faithfully Memphis today stay safe um, and be well and be warm and God bless